You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. Blake waits in the car, Bismuth found for him. It's cold, a wicked wind whips along the embankment, scattering old newspapers, but he keeps the heater off. The interior stinks of cheap mints, cut-price deodorant, and other people's cigarettes. He is parked by the river, across the road from a narrow green hut. It is something like a cross between a cottage and a phone box, built from timber and frosted glass. A cabman's shelter, one of a baker's dozen remaining in London. Blake watches the cabs come and go. They are part of the furniture of the city, at this moment. Everywhere you look, there one is. Hard to believe that within two decades, they will be all but extinct. Something moves in his periphery, and his skin prickles. It's more than the cold, more than the wind. The dark is active. He can sense it, just as he could sense it at the train station this morning. History is breaking around him, tiny fractures that let the dark in. Taking his eyes off the wing mirror, Blake sees the man he has been waiting for, coming out of the shelter, small and narrow as a well-chewed pencil. He is almost a cartoon of corruption. He wears a greasy mac, a crumpled shirt, a thin moustache, and a thinner tie. Walking to his cab, he pulls a copy of Razzle magazine from his coat and boldly thumbs its glossy pages. His name, as much as he has one, is Porno. He is a guide. Cab driving is the legal side of his business. His real living comes from getting people off the maps and onto the manors. For a price, his lot will take you wherever you want to go if you know to ask. Blake gets out of the car and makes it to Porno's cab, just in time to slam the opening driver's door on the other man's fingers. Leave it out! Porno spits before noticing who he's spitting at. A nicotine-stained grin spreads across his sweaty cheeks. Young Mr. Blake, ain't seen you round the manors lately. Can't say I've missed you. Needing a lift, are you? Just a chat, Porno. Ain't you got friends? In high places, Who've you had on the back lately? Few famous faces. Nobody you'd know. I see your old mate around now and then. He's got one of us working with him. Odd bloke. Quiet. Keeps to himself. He's all books and tinkering. Think he's got ideas about himself. Dead serious. Me? I like a jolly. Know what I mean? Blake bunches his nose, taking in the guide's general state of decay. The halo of dandruff. The tea stains and grease marks the girly mag shoved carelessly in his back pocket. The manners are full of people like Porno, people who prefer things how they were, retreating into the past where their attitudes and preferences are still fashionable. Blake has never seen the appeal. Time moves forward. Things change. They progress. He has always believed that. Some mornings, he still can. You don't look well, Mr Blake, if you don't mind me saying. You've been away. Further than you could possibly imagine, Porno. You wouldn't like to know the things I could imagine, Mr Blake. Blake taps his fingers on the roof of the cab. What do you think I want to know, Porno? Well, I had this dream the other night. You've been on the manners. What's occurring? <laughs> yeah, I wondered when you lot would get interested. Ain't a cabbie in London talking about anything else. They started small, didn't they? Took you a while to notice. Notice what? Times are changing, literally like. Little things that shouldn't have happened. Little things going wrong when they should have gone right. They want to shake things up. You know what kids are like. Kids. 
The Fallen, that's what they call themselves. Got some idea that the manners are going to rise up and take back the streets. Your streets, the real streets. Why The Fallen? Because that's what we are, isn't it? The also-rans, the people who fell through the cracks. The people you lot ain't got no time for. So it's some kind of uprising. That's a good word for it, uprising. I like that, because we've been down a long time. You're part of it, then. The Fallen. Ha! You think I'd be talking to you if I had anything to do with them? Nah, it's just something to talk about for most of us. When you're in the know, I'm alright with how things are. I get by, ducking and diving. Always going to be people who need to get away. But you should know. They're serious. Serious how? They stage little disruptions. Make things happen that make no sense. Sooner or later, people are going to notice. Things don't make no sense no more. People stop believing, then things fall apart. That's how it works, right? That's how the dark gets in. Blake again feels the prickling in his skin. More than that, he hears the singing of the sword. This is it. This is what he is here for. Where do I find them, these fallen? How should I know? You're a guide. You know every manner. No guy knows every manner. There's forgotten manners, forbidden manners, locked manners, places I ain't never going to step foot. You know what the sisters are like. Forbidden manners. That's where they are. For now, word is, before you know it, they'll be everywhere. How do I get to them if you can't find them? Well, you can start with your mate. He's had a right come down, hasn't he? But his guy knows his stuff. More than me, maybe. He don't like to share. Blake nods, annoyed. He lets go of the cab door takes a folded note from his trouser pocket and throws it on the driver's seat. Porno snatches it up. Fifty! Very generous of you, Mr. Blake. Call it inflation. He walks off. Porno's voice follows him along the pavement. Hang about! This note's a wrong un. It says 2024. Should have known not to trust a suit. Except that's not what you are anymore, is it, Mr. Blake? You've had a come down of your own, ain't you? That's why we don't see you no more. You just wait till the fallen come for you, matey. See if I give you a good reference. Blake is halfway across the road when he feels it rush at him. He has been distracted, thinking too much about the past. He has lost sight of the present. A page of yesterday's paper, caught by the wind, snaps across his face, blinding him. He claws at it, staggering back. Another page binds his hand. A broadsheet wraps around his legs. He's being parceled up like a fish supper. Shadows swoop and circle in the wind around him. Blake stops, breathes, listens, feels for what is right. There it is, the way. Still blinded, he hobbles in the direction his fate is pulling him. More pages snap and wrap around him, slowing him. But he hobbles on, down the right path. It takes him to the river wall. His right arm tears the paper, fastening it to his side. His hand, still wrapped in yesterday's news, shoots out over the wall, held out above the waters of the Thames. The dark is getting bold, but it fears him. It fears the sword. Blake's fingers strain and stretch and finally rip the pages that bind them. He can't open his mouth, can't speak, can't call it, but he feels the sword ready in the water below, feels electricity in his palm, waiting to catch it. The wind dies. The paper falls away from him like the litter it is. The shadows around him shift and snap back to their proper size, their proper place. Blake catches his breath. He reclaims his hand. The electricity fades. 
There is good news and bad news. He is on the right track. The sword never tells him what his mission is, only hints. Warmer, colder, warmer. Now his palm burns with heat. That is the good news. The bad news is that something has gone very, very wrong. And Blake hasn't the first idea how to stop it. The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Book One, How to Disappear Completely Written and performed by Mike Bartlett Episode 11 Theo and Kilby walk in silence along the tunnel towards Tower Hill. It takes them the best part of 20 minutes. Every now and then, Theo thinks she sees something twitch along the wall. Every now and then, she stumbles and Kilby catches her by the elbow. Every now and then, she lets him. She blames him for this, even if she no longer knows why. His wound is more superficial than it seemed, a long, shallow rut that has already stopped bleeding. In an hour, it will have vanished entirely. For now, Kilby sterilizes the rut with whiskey from his hip flask. He seems more worried about the coat, but even that is knitting itself anew. At Tower Hill, Kilby hoists himself onto the platform, and nobody seems to care. He turns back and holds out a hand for Theo. She gives her hand, but he only frowns. The box, he says. She hands it over and climbs up after him. Commuters glance at their watches, only tutting at the grubby, bloodied pair limping towards the exit. Your next circle line service has been delayed, a voice says from the intercom. We're, um, not entirely sure where it is. We should call the police, Theo says, surprised by her own voice. Kilby frowns. He seems paler now, colder, as if he no longer sees the point in charm. Maybe he is more troubled than he cares to share. And tell them what, exactly? Okay, call an ambulance then. It's too late for ambulances. Those people have families. Which people? Theo's mouth is dry. Everything shakes. Her fingers, her legs, her tongue. There were people. Each word feels weightless and speculative. Weren't there? No, there weren't. Not anymore. The dark swallows time and anything that runs on it. We're lucky we were ever born. Theo wants to argue, but can't. The more she thinks about what happened on the train, the more she pushes it away. She snatches at faces, but only shoves them under. She knows she and Kilby weren't alone on the train, even if she's sure that they were. You've seen this before, she says. The dark. He nods, brisk, discouraging any conversation down that line. On the street outside, everything is offensively normal. Drizzle is coming down the road from Tower Bridge. Tired faces bustle past, jostling anyone who moves without haste or thought. There, across the road, is the Tower of London. It's the first time Theo has seen it, having never found time to be a tourist, and its iconic silhouette now appears absurd. It belongs to a quiet, pastel world of happy families and open-top buses. That is not... Theo's world. Not now. Kilby is making a phone call. 
Thursday morning, 5.48, Tower of London. When he hangs up and hands the phone to Theo, she realises it's her phone. You could have asked, she says. I'm low on credit. She looks over at Kilby and sees the jagged rend, smaller than before, across his coat pocket. The box is back in situ. She realises her right hand feels empty. Her fingers want to curl around something glass and heavy. That man was Josh, until he put something in that jar, and then he changed into somebody else. I saw it happen. Kilby leans back against the fence, burying his hands in his coat pockets. He won't look at her. You've woken up beside people, lovers, boyfriends, whatever. Sometimes you look at them and it's like you've never seen them before. They're a stranger. Well, sometimes they are. It can take a while to adjust after a swap. A swap? When you decide to sell out your futures as a package deal, do that and someone can walk straight into your life and not even your old mum will know the difference. Theo can't help but scoff. Don't be stupid. Wouldn't know how to start. Kilby's smile is pinched, a parody of the real thing. Theo feels him pulling away from her, switching off whatever part of him he had illuminated for her, disappearing into the dark. She isn't ready to be alone on the pavement. Back in the cab, you said soul. Josh sold his soul, and that man put it in a jar. It's a hypothesis, at least it was. That man put Josh's soul in a jar and everyone forgot him, except me. Well, didn't they? I spent a week as a secretary from Wigan once, for a job, never again. The heels were murder. He is joking, but only for his benefit. A private joke. You had to be there. A battered black cab mounts the curb. Nero winds down the passenger window and leers out. Problem? We're just finishing up. Kilby frowns. What happened to your eye? Nero hesitates. Yeah, need to talk to you about that. Later. Jones needs to go home. Nero looks Theo up and down three ways, like he's still working out what to make of her, but the signs aren't good. There's a brush in the boot. Don't want you going anywhere near my seats looking like that. Kilby opens the back door, and when Theo hesitates, he bundles her inside with such swiftness and ease that she can't quite remember being pushed. She is on the curb, and then she is on the back seat. There's nothing in between. She hears Kilby close the door after himself. The cab pulls away to lose itself in traffic. Nero looks up in the rear view. Where's the boyfriend? Jones lost him. A simple sentence. To Theo, it sounds like a dismissal. What is wrong with you? Theo hears her voice and wonders where it has come from. Anger has risen in her with a dizzy gravity, urging her towards an inevitable collision. She isn't ready to be abandoned, to be forgotten as easily as Kilby seems to have forgotten the past twenty minutes. Twenty minutes? Is that all it has been? Twenty minutes and everything has changed. She has changed. She feels colder than cold. No warmth will ever reach her again. Whatever happened on the train already feels several times removed. A vivid dream dissolved by daylight, a story told her by a friend, a film she once watched, involving and urgent, but ultimately a fiction. People died and didn't and never were. Nero and Kilby exchange winces. I think she's talking to you, Kilby says. But he's looking at Theo now with a decent impression of compassion, like he's remembered how to be human. 
that icy distance, there since the lights went out on the train, has dissolved. Listen, Jones, I know it's a lot to take in. This isn't my fault. Theo's hands are bunched. She isn't going to let Kilby walk away from this. She is ready for a fight. She is staring at the rear view at Nero's new bruise as it appears and disappears beneath the city lights. Kilby adjusts his tie. Okay. This is your fault. Is it? You sent your mate there to come and find me. He gave me the pictures you took tonight. He had a black eye. That black eye. The black eye he didn't have earlier. Only came and found you because he found me. He only found you because you came and found us, Jones. Causal loop. It's cheaper than advertising. But I told Josh. The night he disappeared, I told him about Nero. That wasn't Josh. Whoever he was, that's why he disappeared. He must have thought you were after him. Maybe he thought you wanted that box. Nero looks up with sudden interest. Box? For the first time, Kilby seems to doubt himself. You're saying Nero came to you before your boyfriend vanished? You said Tuesday, Nero says. Kilby purses his lips. I said yesterday. Today's Wednesday. It's Thursday morning. Wednesday night. But it was Thursday night. Thursday's yesterday is Wednesday. This is Wednesday. Right, today is yesterday. There is something alienating in the playful rhythms of this tiff, as if nothing that has happened tonight matters, that everything is trivia. Shut up, Theo says. She glares at Kilby hard enough for him to wince. You made this happen, all of it. That man said Josh was coming back in 24 hours, that's what he said. If I'd waited, if I hadn't come looking, if you hadn't come looking, Josh would have come back. What does that mean? I don't know. Why was he pretending to be Josh? What's so special about that box? Again, Nero asks, what box? Jones, these are very exciting questions, but I fear the answers will be far, far too expensive. Your boyfriend is gone, and even I can't find him now. Not yesterday or last week, come to that. If the dark takes your soul, Nero swears, hold up, you've seen the dark. Theo ignores him. You said swap? That man had Josh's soul, so if we find out who he was, we can find Josh, the man who was Josh. He'll remember me, won't he? Even if Josh is gone. Possibly, probably, yes, but there's no way of knowing who he really was, or where to find him. Josh found him. The thing is, I know Josh. He used to get lost in Ikea. He didn't just wake up one morning and decide to swap his soul. Someone must have shown him how. She sees a flicker of something behind Kilby's careful nothingness. Guilt, understanding, or curiosity. You know, don't you? It's possible, but if the butchers are involved, this could all get very deadly, and I find that kind of as existential threat to be particularly boring, deadly boring. You really should go home. I can't. It's not after tonight. Just the idea of going home makes me feel sick. The cold hollow in her gut fills with something hard and heavy. She feels herself gaining gravity, rushing forwards with a new and relentless velocity. Where? It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. The truth. Where would Josh have gone if he wanted to disappear on the manors? Kilby knows. She realises she does too. She also realises she knows exactly how to make Kilby help her. The Albion.
that's where he went, isn't it? Constance thought that's why I was there, to find somewhere to go. I showed her the photo Nero sent me, and I was sure she recognised him. Constance isn't in the soul trade, but she would know someone, wouldn't she? She would have pointed him in the right direction. Kilby gave her a flat smile that found a perfect middle ground between pleased and frustrated. You really don't want to let this go. Josh, whatever's left of him has to be out there somewhere. I'm the only person in the world that remembers him. I have to try to find him. If that other man can help, feeling uncomfortable at that note of desperation in her voice, she changes tack. Maybe he could tell you what's so special about that box. Don't try to persuade me, Jones. I hate being persuaded. Unless I want to be. Fine. I'm your client, aren't I? I'm paying you to find him, so find him. Kilby laughs just once. (laughs) And what are you paying me exactly? Whatever it takes. My future. All my futures. I don't care. Just do what you have to do to fix this. You know that if we find him, he won't be himself. He can't come back. Your life with him is over. I still need to find him. Kilby opens his mouth to object, but there is no arguing with her. Not now. He closes his mouth again, smiles, frowns, smiles again, raps on the glass divider. How many times, Nero says, don't do that. Forget Hackney. Take us to Camden. Somewhere between Tower Hill and Camden, Theo falls asleep. Once the adrenaline has faded, she is left with a deep exhaustion that goes far beyond her bones. She feels hollowed out at a cellular level. More than that, her will, whatever it has been that has burned in her to drive her this far, feels extinguished. She is cold ashes on a gloomy morning. As Nero drives his impossible route, she curls against the back seat and, through the window, watches the city get lost around them. She is woken by a draught. Cold air washes in from the pavement through an open door. A ginger kitten is prodding at her chin as if it has never seen one before. Looking out, Theo can see a phone box lit spectral against the gloom. A cortina whizzes past, blasting a familiar refrain. They are outside the Albion, back in 1979. That fight is still going on a few doors up. The same three men, locked in an endless barney. Kilby is looking up, throwing coins at a window above. Half a dozen coppers tinkle on the concrete by his boots before the front door opens and Constance scowls out. You know I'm closed. My client has questions, Kilby says, beckoning Theo over. Constance takes in the blood and the dirt and the hollow look around her caller's eyes and steps back from the door. The Albion is in darkness, but it is clear to Theo that the damage of three hours earlier has been undone. Tables that were broken are no longer broken. Chairs that were shattered are now unshattered. Stools and glasses are stacked, again unharmed. The ghosts of dead cigarettes linger, as does the carpet pong of spilled beer, but there is nothing to suggest that anything more dramatic has happened here than an average night of drunken conversation. Constance wears a blue chinoiserie nightgown over not a lot else. A squat hat of a different blue sits jauntily on her head, trailing a long feather of yet another shade of blue over her right shoulder. Her hair has collapsed in curls and the punkish makeup been replaced by a simple eyeshadow and bold lipstick, much of which is smeared about her left cheek. The effect, Theo thinks, is very much Mary Poppins at the bordello. The fire is still burning. Or is it burning again? But Constance leads her guests 
to the Chesterfield sofas and armchairs huddled around the grate. The leather welcomes Theo like an old friend, whispering fragrant memories of booze and fags and dry-roasted peanuts. While Kilby recounts the events of the past hours with more flippancy than Theo thinks decent, the landlady scoops two different teas into a pot and boils the kettle. Meat smiths, she says, bringing over four cups of tea on a silver tray. Who have you been annoying lately? Theo takes her cup gladly, noting the young queen on its side, celebrating her jubilee. The tea smells of wood smoke and bergamot, and she doesn't have time to object before Constance doses it with two fingers of Glenlivet. For the nerves, she says, winking. Theo gives her a wonky, grateful smile. She is in need of comfort, even as she feels a weird urge to reject it. The evening's horrors already feel less raw and real. She isn't ready for them to fade into story, particularly not the story the way Kilby tells it, a mere tale to share over tea, but the fact is, she is no longer clear about what has happened. She remembers seeing Josh, but it wasn't Josh. She remembers the meatsmiths chasing them to the train. She remembers shadows peeling off the walls, but she also remembers that not happening. She and Kilby had been alone. The carriage had been empty. Half an hour later, she knows nothing for certain. All she has are feelings, which is why it troubles her that Kilby seems to feel nothing. Maybe this is what life is like on the manors. Maybe this is a typical evening for him. Theo isn't ready for it to ever become normal for her. Kilby waits for his whiskey before lifting his cup. He then waits a while longer until Constance gives him another two fingers. I haven't been annoying anyone, he says, pausing to look around for the wreckage of a pub crawl that, hours later, has never happened. Nobody important, anyway. You don't think anyone is important, that's your problem. Constance puts a cup in front of Nero, who doesn't look up to put a hand over it. She keeps the whiskey to herself, but doesn't move away. Let's have a look at it, then. Nero shudders with guilt and caves in over his cup. It's nothing, innit? Kilby snaps upright. What's nothing? Of course you haven't noticed. My God, you're a selfish beast. You don't deserve such loyalty. With delicate fingers, Constance lifts the wrist Nero is trying to hide from her and unknots its handkerchief bandage. Even in the firelight, the new scar in the belly of his wrist seems crisp and vivid. The strokes of the hours seem to throb, the clock hands pulse. Theo winces, instinctively cupping her own wrist. Kilby scoffs. He's got a cigarette burn against tea and sympathy. I nearly got killed three times, in five minutes. I had to be properly heroic. Ask Jones here. This sudden attention bewilders Theo. I'm... I'm not sure what happened, she says. Kilby sinks back in his chair. Typical. All my best moments are apocryphal. Theo leans in to study the wrist Constance still holds. The precise detail of the scar seems unreal, as hypnotic as it is painful. She could swear the minute hand is straining to move on across narrow skin. Is it a clock? A doomsday clock. He's had a visit from the sisters. This rich, deep voice belongs to the owner of the fourth cup of tea. He is sitting at the far end of the bar, his right leg folded over his left in a half-lotus. Theo and the others have been carefully not looking at him since he first sat down. He looks, Theo thinks, more like a policeman than anyone she has ever seen before. There is the thick, well-groomed moustache, there is the pipe, held in a frown like a vice, there are the broad shoulders and barrel chest, 
There is the steady gaze casually sizing up the new arrivals. The only thing missing is anything by way of a uniform, or clothes for that matter. Aside from the wooden top helmet, the man is completely naked. Nobody else seems to find this worth mentioning, so Theo decides to keep it quiet. What's a doomsday clock? She manages to ask this without looking at him below the neck. We see them all the time among a certain class of low life. No offence. Tea leaves and fences, mainly. The man glances at Nero again. No offence. Nero shrugs. The policeman continues. A doomsday clock is a promise. The sisters want something from you and they're giving you a chance to be a good boy and find it before midnight comes and they put your lights out. And who are the sisters? The sisters of the dark, the policeman says. After an evening of Kilby's evasion and riddles, he seems gratifyingly direct. Order of old nuns that worship the shadows that live in the gap. Shadows that peel from the walls. I think I've seen it. The dark. I ain't got nothing of theirs, Nero says, half convincing. Constance gives Nero back his wrist and folds her arms. She looks at Kilby with deliberate and infinite patience. He puts down his cup of tea and wrestles his shoulders. Why would you assume this has anything to do with me? All I'm doing is helping Jones here find her boyfriend, a job which, despite promising to pay me, she is doing her level best to make nigh on impossible. Constance waits. Okay, Jones and I did stumble across something, something her boyfriend, uh, the very ex-boyfriend, seemed to be hiding from the meatsmiths, but I can't see how that would have anything to do with... It was a box, Theo says. A big wooden box with carvings. It sort of looked like one of those old Bibles. Kilby winces and flaps a silencing hand. Jones, I, I don't think... Nero glances up over the top of his paperback. Say that again. It looks like one of those old Bibles, the, the sort they have chained up in old churches. Something a monk would have spent his life copying out. The naked policeman nods, as if the clues had led him here ahead of everyone else. A shadow cabinet. Kilby hides behind his cup. No idea what you're talking about. Theo persists. What's a shadow cabinet? The Sisters of the Dark use them to keep their writings in, ma'am. Constance sighs. This one's an amateur archaeologist. Loves a relic. Sensing an obvious quip en route, she tells Kilby to shut up. We see these cabinets turn up every now and then on our manor, you see. Cause no end of trouble, ma'am. Everyone wants them, but the sisters don't like to share. Wouldn't want to be in the shoes of anyone who got caught with one. Good lord, no. They'd cut you out of time like a fisherman guts a trout. He bit into his pipe, emitting a sulphurous cloud, and seems happy to disappear behind it. Very interesting, Kilby says. In a, an academic sense, obviously. What's so special about their writings? Theo says. Their maps, Kilby says. The sisters are obsessed with things that aren't supposed to have happened. Word is, they've been mapping them for centuries. Why? Kilby has his elbows on the bar top, holding his cup with both hands. Think about it, Jones. Things that aren't supposed to have happened? You're sitting in one right now. The only way onto a manor is to have someone show you the way, unless... Someone's been kind enough to draw you a map, in which case you can come and go as you like. Pillage, pilfer and plunder. A box full of maps would be priceless. Dangerously so, Constance says. You heard what the sergeant said. Only a complete fool would try to steal one. It's in his pocket, Theo says, almost accidentally. 
She realises now it wasn't just the flippancy of Kilby's earlier recap that had bothered her, but the fact it had been so clumsily abridged. Kilby had described the scene at the office in amusing and garish detail, but said next to nothing of the treasure. Now he looks at Theo in freeze frame, cup still at his lip. Nothing in his face moves except his eyes, which seem to age visibly as if on an extraordinary time-lapse. Everything else in the pub is still. A timeless moment, it could have been a minute or five, passes. Constance folds her arms again. Please, tell me you didn't take it. Ha! <laughs> As if that would have been madness. Kilby laughs, convincing nobody. Well, okay, just a little. Yes. With a sigh, he reaches into his coat and produces the box, which he delivers with a thump to the coffee table. The tea things rattle. Nero puts down his paperback. You are joking me. If it makes you feel better, the damn thing won't open. Either there's a trick or we'll need a locksmith. We? There ain't no we. You stole it. Excuse me. Constance picks up the cabinet and carries it towards Nero. As she approaches, Nero flinches and grabs at his wrist. A sudden, hot stab of pain indicates the minute hand has spun forward three quarters of an hour. Well, there we are then. By way of apology, Constance lays her free hand on Nero's cap. The sisters came for Nero because they knew you were going to steal it. Now you've got until midnight to get rid of it again. Theo watches Nero replace the bandage on his wrist. Why don't you just give it back to the sisters? Everyone else laughs, even the policeman. Theo does her best impression of someone who doesn't care. The sisters are never grateful, Kilby says, reclaiming the cabinet and trying his luck with the lock. Best think of this as a hot potato. You really don't want to be holding it when the music stops. Nero grunts. So why'd you bleed him picking up then? All I knew was the meatsmiths were killing people for it. They tried to kill me for it. I figured it was worth something. Abandoning the lock as a lost cause, Kilby shoves the box back into his coat. Whoever was pretending to be Jones's boyfriend must have thought so too. You think Josh knew about the cabinet? No idea, but I think his replacement used your boyfriend to get it. Why him? Because he was nobody. Think about it, Jones. The sisters are ready to kill Nero just because I accidentally picked up the cabinet. Accidentally, Nero says. The meatsmiths tried to kill anyone who went near it, so if I was the sort of person who wanted to steal it, I would go out of my way not to be that person when I did steal it. You mean he pretended to be Josh, so Josh would get the blame? Why would Josh agree to that? Kilby gives her a flat smile that is more question than explanation. A new sinkhole of horror opens beneath Theo's ribs. There are implications she has carefully avoided these past hours. She's been living with a stranger, but for how long? She shudders with embarrassment. She feels exposed and grubby. That doesn't last long. Soon, she only feels angry. Did Josh know what would happen he didn't tell me? Did he choose to swap with someone else? A complete stranger? The diary in his sock drawer. I just try to get on with things. A chill runs through her. He knew. Who had she been sleeping beside, and for how long? Forget the boyfriend. Nero is growing impatient. What do we do about the alarm clock? Kilby rubs his hands together. He seems almost indecently excited by their predicament. Right. Let's be clear. 
Our mission now is to make this box someone else's problem, which means giving it to someone who isn't going to kill us by way of thank you. The bad news is our list of candidates is depressingly small. Basically, I count one. The good news is it's the exact bloke we came here to find. He looks at Constance with full and bewildering charm. Slow down, my lover. What does this have to do with me? She says. Kilby clicks his fingers at Nero, who slips out one of the Polaroids from the pages of his book. Josh, caught under streetlight. One of the same photos Nero had given Theo. Kilby lays it on the bar top for Constance to frown at. It's all to do with Jones's boyfriend, who was a complete nobody. And if he was a nobody, he could have been anybody. Anybody who felt a bit lost in London, who was finding it hard to live up to expectations. Somebody who might be a soft target. Ah, Constance puts down her teacup. Now I understand the reason for your late-night call. This is an accusation. Kilby looks at her over the top of his cup. I said my client had questions. Constance sighs and, leaning over, reaches into the umbrella rack near the fireplace and produces a sawn-off shotgun. It is such an unexpected thing for the landlady to do that Theo laughs. She'd never seen anyone hold a real gun before, let alone a middle-aged woman in her Edwardian nightgown and feathered hat. The idea is as ridiculous as it is sinister. Sorry to do this to you, my sweethearts, but I'm calling time, Constance says. Take your cabinet and clear off! Nero has already slid from his chair and raises his hands. Theo does the same more than a little self-conscious. What did I say? It was the policeman who spoke. Guilt by association, ma'am. You're hot company. Dangerous to know. You just trace the thief back to Connie's front door. Myself, I'd be escorting you off my manor quick smart before the trouble kicked off. Well, that doesn't really seem very fair, Theo says. I don't want the box. I'm just trying to find my boyfriend. You're barred, Constance says. There is none of the playful bonhomie of earlier. Her voice is as steady as her hands. All three of you, until that cabinet is ancient history. And I'd appreciate it if you told everyone you meet that I booted you out, at gunpoint, with serious indignation. I want it clear none of this was on me. Theo sees the landlady's gaze flicker to the Polaroid on the bar. Josh did come here, didn't he? Since you're asking, yes, three months back. He came in with a thin bloke I'd never seen before. About your age, nervous-looking, bookish. Wouldn't have taken him for a thief. Three months. Theo lets that pass. Sounds like the man I saw tonight. Uh, last night. Wh whatever. The man who was Josh. Why didn't you tell me this before? For all I knew, there were a couple. Besides, like I said, if you wanted to disappear, you wouldn't want me pointing someone in your direction, would you? Kilby is listening to all of this, as if none of it surprises him. So, where did you point them? Listen, the landlady's expression is fierce. I'm not having trouble with the sisters, not for you, not for anyone. Think you'll find every other man and will feel the same until, as you say, that hot potato is someone else's problem. Kilby tilts his head. And if the sisters find us before then? Then, my darling, I guess I'll have to write off your slate. Connie. Kilby's voice is gentle and his smile easy, full charm. Come on now, we've been very good to each other over the years. For a moment, it seems like his charm may have broken through. The landlady angles her head to match his, edging towards reminiscence. Happy times. Her spine straightens and the gun barrel lifts. You were young and pretty, she says. Now sling your hook. Kilby turns. He has walked half a step before Constance relents. Wait. He waits. 
Constant sighs. Chip shop Elvis, she says. He was the only tout in that night. They wanted to trade, so I put them in his way. That's all. She raises her voice, talking to the ceiling. I don't know anything about the sisters or any box. The sergeant can vouch for that. The policeman taps his helmet in a semi-salute. Certainly can, ma'am. Thanks for the tea, Kilby says. As Theo walks behind him to the door, her hands raised, she feels a pang of relief. It takes her a few moments to identify it. Minutes ago, she'd been alone in her sinkhole of despair. But now, now she has company. You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk. Book One, How to Disappear Completely. Written and performed by Mike Bartlett. If you'd like to find out more about this podcast, check out salmonandusk.com. You've been listening to a Burnt Toast production.